Man, I don't know about you, but my heart's overflowing just hearing what God's about in the world and being able to be a part of that. As a pastor here for 32 years, my heart's especially overflowing when I see pictures of Ben and Renee up there. You know, I watched Ben grow up in this church and then watched him go away for training and then to see what God's doing in his life is amazing. And I'll bet you're wondering, and I am too, who the next Ben Kowitzki would be growing up in our children's ministry, our student ministries right now. And I'm also thankful to be asked to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Tom Blanchard has been a long-term friend. We've known each other for close to 40 years. And uh, after Tom finished his uh, seminary training at Denver Seminary, I was asked to be a part of his ordination council. And so I'm so thankful for that and for the opportunity to sit on that with other people like Dr. Malcolm Cronk and uh, Dr. Uh, John Mitchell, who is the pastor at Bethany Bible Church that started this church. And it's just amazing to watch what God has done through Tom and Lucy in the many years, 30 years on the field in France. And we've had the privilege of supporting them financially and through our prayers through much of that time. But just to watch how God has used you in so many ways. Tom's a loving husband of his wife, Lucy, for 43 years, a devoted father. Uh, Liz is sitting here. You saw her picture on the screen earlier as she read the passage from John 3:16 into French. And Marie, their other daughter, who is one of their other daughters that's with us this morning. You also saw with Pastor Caleb earlier today. Uh, translating into Spanish, one of about five or six or ten languages that she knows. It's amazing. And so just to see how God's been at work. Tom has served in a lot of different ways. He served as a missionary. He served as a, a pastor of a church for seasons, an elder and a church leader. Uh, he's a discipler of individuals. Uh, he has primarily been teaching the Word of God to younger men and women who then were preparing for service. And the verse that I think most epitomizes Tom and Lucy's ministry as well as 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul says to his disciple Timothy, he says, The things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust of faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. And one of the things that epitomizes that, my wife Emily and I had the privilege of being with Tom and Lucy just this last fall. And we were in a town in northern France, Strasbourg. And Tom and I are sitting beside while the girls are off shopping in stores. You know how that happens for Christmas gifts and other things like that. And here the two girls come back dragging this guy behind them. Like, who did they meet in France that they already know? Come to find out was one of Tom's students from 25 to 30 years before when he was teaching in Paris. And they had overheard the conversation that Emily and Lucy were having. And he is now pastoring in that town of Strasbourg. So even though Tom's coming to the point where he's winding down his official ministry as a missionary, he is also, his fruit remains, and it continues on and on and on. Let's give a warm welcome to Tom Blanchard as he comes up here, please. Thanks, Rick. Eh bien, bonjour à tout le monde. Ça fait vraiment plaisir d'être avec vous ce matin. Et j'espère que nous allons passer un bon moment ensemble dans la parole de What's the Matter. <clears throat> okay, well, we'll try and go from here into English if we, if we really need to do that, even though in heaven we'll probably be speaking uh, French, but that's all. And Spanish and Hebrew and a few other languages. Would you pray with me as we open the Word of God? <clears throat> Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of coming together to open your Word. 
And again, Father, we confess that unless your Holy Spirit is at work, these words will remain simply on a page or on a screen, and our prayer is that they would pass deeply into our hearts. So, Father, by your Spirit, would you open our eyes so that we may see, and open our ears that we might hear, open our hearts that we might respond to you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. When the risen Jesus was traveling on the road, unrecognized, on the road to Emmaus with uh, two other disciples, Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And at that time, of course, all the scriptures meant the Old Testament. I'm an Old Testament professor. One of the Old Testament books that speaks most clearly about Jesus and his mission is the book of the prophet Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ came. So much so that sometimes scholars call the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah. It's in Isaiah that we read passages like, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. It's in Isaiah where we we hear at Christmas that great oratorio by Handel, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. But there is in the book of Isaiah also a series of passages in the latter half of the book, four passages in particular, which are called the Songs of the Servant. You're probably familiar with some of them, even if you don't realize it. I'm certain you know the fourth the fourth servant song. It's largely in Isaiah 53, a little bit in chapter 52, where we read texts like, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the inequity of us all to fall on him, the servant. You might recognize the first servant song in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? You hear words like that later on in Jesus' ministry, at his baptism when the Father speaks, at his transfiguration when the Father speaks from heaven. The third servant song you might not know as well, but you'll recognize it. It's found in Isaiah 50 where we read, I gave my back to those who, smite, who struck me. And my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. But this morning, I'd like us to look at the second of the four servant songs. This one is in Isaiah chapter 49. So if you have your Bible with you, your application on your smartphone, we'll be projecting it on the screens as well. Open to Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to look at verses 1 to 7. And what I would like to do is to briefly walk you through this text, verse by verse, so that you can see how God's plan for the salvation of the entire world is focused on this person with a capital P, this servant, this unnamed servant with a capital S. Because don't forget, when you and I read this passage in Isaiah, we cheat because we know who it is. Like in Sunday school, Jesus, yes! But Isaiah didn't know that. He's seven centuries before. He describes this coming person, but he doesn't know the details. But here in this text is God's plan for mission 
God's heart for the world right up to 2018. So if you have long sleeves, roll them up. Let's get to work. Verse 1 of Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. The servant is speaking to us, and he tells us that he's been set apart. But he starts out by addressing the coastlands. Some translations say the islands, and you peoples from afar. Now, if you know your Old Testament, if you know your Bible, the Jews weren't known to be great sea travelers. They do a little fishing on some lakes, but they weren't known to be great people liking taking long cruises anywhere. One of them tried it, a guy named Jonah. It didn't turn out too well. But overall, when you talk about the coastlands, this is the ends of the earth. So the servant starts in verse 1. He says, I have something to say to you. And it's not just for the people of Israel. It's for all the nations of the world. Verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Now, I hope you're hearing bells. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. You know something in the New Testament? For the word of God is like a sharp sword, Hebrews 4, verse 12. And in the book of Revelation, several times, Jesus describes himself, this description that John sees of Jesus with a sharp sword, the word. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, this awesome weapon of ancient times. But there's something weird. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. So you have a weapon, but it's hidden. And the other forceful weapon of ancient days, he made me like a polished arrow. Picture the Lord of the Rings. In his quiver, he hid me away. So you have two powerful weapons, but you can't see them. They're hidden. You don't see the strength. That's odd. That's strange. Something is going on here. And as we read through this text, we say, well, well, well who is this servant anyway? And again, don't cheat. Don't bring the answer in, even though you know. Who is this servant who is speaking? Maybe he'll tell us. Let's look at verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Okay, well, there we go. Now we have the answer. The servant described here is Israel. He is Israel. He's the people of God in whom I will be glorified. Other translations say, in whom I will show my splendor. But if you've, again, if you've read your Old Testament, the people of God didn't exactly do too well at glorifying God in their lives. They didn't exactly do too well outside of occasional moments with certain individuals. They didn't do too well at manifesting the splendor of God through the way they lived. That was their calling as servants but they didn't do it too well. So again, this is strange. The servant is Israel, and yet something strange. Let's go on to verse 4. But I said, the servant speaking, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Boy, this is strange. Because here, again, it seems... I'm using that carefully, that all the servant's efforts have been for nothing. 
And doesn't he seem to say that? Everything I've done has come to naught, to vanity. And yet, is the servant discouraged? No, because he goes on to say, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. He keeps his trust in the Lord despite the seeming discouragement. Now, in verse 5, it's going to get really confusing. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, for what purpose? To bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the, in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Whoa, whoa, time out. Now I'm really confused. Because we said in verse 3 that the servant is Israel, right? Now, in verse 5, he says that the servant's mission is to bring Israel, that Israel might be gathered back to him. How, how can he be Israel if he has to bring Israel back? I'm confused. Is he Israel or isn't he Israel? Well, as we look at this text in the context of all the Bible, and especially the Old Testament parts which came even earlier than Isaiah, we have to see God's purposes in the world as sort of a, a great, big, tall, pointed pyramid moving upward. And in the beginning, God created man and woman so that they would multiply and fill the earth with men and women, faithful servants of their heavenly Father. But because of sin entering into the world, that didn't last very long. So what did God do? He began cho choosing certain ones who would accomplish his purposes in the world. And he chose the family of Seth. And then later on, he chose the family of Noah. And then he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to become a new people with the 12 tribes of Israel. And then from those 12 tribes, he chose one tribe in particular who would carry on his purpose for the world in a very unique way, the tribe of Judah. And then from the tribe of Judah, he chose one particular man to become his servant par excellence in the Old Testament, a king by the name of David. And yet from David, there was a long line of kings, some good, some bad, but only one of them would become the servant king. The only one of them who would totally accomplish God's plan for the entire world. And here he is in this text, right at the very pinnacle, right at the very point, the very top, of that pyramid. He is the perfect Israel, incarnate. He is the perfect servant with a capital S. And he will bring the faithful remnant of Israel back to God. This is incredible. This is all there in this text from Isaiah. But you know what? God looks at that and he says, that's not enough. I want more. It's always been my purpose that there be more. God never intended to save just Israel. From the very beginning, from the moment sin entered into the Garden of Eden, 
From the moment later on when he called Abraham, God's intention has always been to bring salvation to all the families of the earth. His heart has always been for the entire world. Look at this great verse, verse 6. He says, it is too light a thing, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's not enough. I want more. Even when I chose Israel, it was for a greater purpose. What is that greater purpose? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission did not start in the New Testament. It's been there from the beginning, and here it is in Isaiah. And when you read that, light for the nations, all the peoples of the earth, do you hear the bells ringing? God's word to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations. Do you hear the same bells ringing 700 years later, when old Simeon, remember old Simeon there at the temple, and he's holding this little baby, and he's looking at this little baby he took from the arms of Joseph and Mary, and he declares, now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This baby is the top of the pyramid a light to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Simeon quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6. Amazing. This servant, this perfect Israel, is going to explode the, the boundaries of God's plan and go way beyond Israel as a nation. It's sort of like we've now arrived at the top of the pyramid with this baby, with this Christ, with this servant, but it's not going to stop there. And we arrive at the top, and now what do we find? We find another pyramid, but upside down from that top, and it's going in the opposite direction, outward and onward. So from this servant, Jesus, what do we find in the New Testament? Well, on Easter Sunday, later in the evening, we find the 12, 11, gathered together in the upper room. And then a few weeks later, we find 120 gathered in the upper room, the day of Pentecost. And as the day of Pentecost closes, we find 3,000 people who have become Christians. And then a little later in the book of Acts, bam, the gospel jumps over this barrier to the Samaritans, these half-breed people. And now they're part of God's people. And a little later in the book of Acts, bam, bam, the gospel jumps over into the Gentiles with Cornelius and into the other Gentiles, and Gentile churches are created. And then it just goes on and on. All these people coming into the people of God through the work of that servant at the top. Do you see it? And it's there in the text. From country to country, from one century to the next, right up to Desert Springs Bible Church in 2018, and France, and Spain, and South America, and Indonesia. It's all there in verse 6. And then Isaiah concludes in verse 7, so we can finish the text. And he says, and he says in verse 7, there he is. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, the servant 
who is there, once again, strange. He is humiliated. And yet, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. 700 years before Christ, the servant is humiliated, the servant is exalted. An incredible passage about God's plan for his servant king, his plan for the salvation of the earth. But this passage, I think, can also have some very personal application to your life and to mine. And as I thought through over 30 years of missionary ministry, there are three particular applications I'd like to leave with you very quickly. The first is that this servant, Jesus, has promised to build his church. And he'll build it using his word. He said in verse 4, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. It's the proclamation and teaching of the word of God, and only that through the power of the Spirit that can change lives. We missionaries, we pastors, we ministers, those of you involved with ministry, we use all kinds of different forms by which we proclaim and teach the Word of God. And they can be very good things. We've used approaches in evangelism over the years. Oh, in the early days, we used to use tent ministries, putting up a tent and preaching there. And there'd be film showings, and we'd have gospel concerts and track distributions to homes, and open-air preaching and door-to-door surveys and many more. And then I've seen all kinds of different structures set up so that churches will grow and multiply in the land. They've changed. Some missionaries use very high liturgy structures where things are formal, and others use very low liturgy structures where things are just sort of, you know, really cool and let the Spirit lead and, and all that. And that's okay, too. And then there's mega churches, and then there's little house churches, and there's seeker-sensitive churches, and then there's disciple-making churches, and there's been all kinds and I've been involved with training leaders for ministry all my lives. And we've used theological education by extension. And we've used church-based leadership training. And we use seminars with big red notebooks or blue notebooks. There's nothing political about that whatsoever. But, and we use uh, webinars with videos. And we use online classes and offline resources. And I've taught at Bible seminaries and, and institutes and formal training and informal training and non-formal training and and I've seen the Lord use all these things, and it's good. But, you know, the external forms change, and structures change, and what works here and now might not work as well then and there in a different context. And sometimes that can be dangerous in the sense that, well, this has happened to me. One can spend many years developing a good, solid program of teaching and training, and you know what? The next person who comes along takes the whole thing apart, and they want to do it a different way. And, hey, that's okay, because it's not about me. It's not about my program. It's about the Word of God. My program won't change anybody, but the Word of God will Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Isaiah, in this context, says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And do you know what that means? That means that the book, that Bible that you're holding in your hands, paper, or on your smartphone, is the most powerful God-chosen means of advancing God's plan for the world. 
Read it. Study it. Secret to the Christian life? Read your Bible, pray every day. That's it. That's it. The kids have it. How come we don't get it? That's it. Give New Testaments. Give Bibles. Read them with people. Jesus will build his church, and he'll build it using his word. A second application I'll give you from this one is that Jesus will build his church, and he'll build it despite or sometimes even through my weaknesses and my own sense of failure. I think by far one of the biggest reasons missionaries leave the mission field, quite honestly, is discouragement. Like in verse 4, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. We often feel like that on the mission field. And then we look at ourselves, and I've got so many weaknesses and so many failings, and what good are my efforts? I've done this for years and years, and what do I have to show for it? You probably never experience anything like that in this country, do you? Ah. You know, in the summer of 1981, I was a brand new missionary in France, and I was responsible for directing a team of college students who were going to spend the summer evangelizing in France for two months. So we focused on two cities, the city where I lived and the Paris suburbs with the city next door, the combined population of about 100,000 people. And we had 25,000 tracts, offers for New Testament, offers to get in contact with people that we distributed door-to-door, mailboxes. We were hoping maybe, Lord, please give us a response of maybe 1%. That'd be great. That'd be 250. At the end of the summer, we had five. And after following up on those contacts, only one led to a real conversation with anybody. And with a lady named Alice, Alice. I thought, what a waste of time and resources. One contact from the whole summer, what a failure. I was so discouraged. But then Alice led her sister Clarissa to the Lord, And then Alice led her son Patrick to the Lord. And then Alice led her son Natalie to the Lord. And then her niece, Fabienne, who was living with her. And Fabienne had a boyfriend whose name was Claude. And Fabienne said to Claude, okay, I'm a follower of Christ now. I'm in the light. You're in the darkness. What are you going to do about it? And he said, well, what do I do? And he became a Christian. And I, I baptized him. And then I counseled them and married them there in the early 80s. And they went on to be part of that church. Well, Lucy and I went on to different ministries over the years. 20 years later, I'm teaching in Geneva, in Switzerland, at a Bible school there, and I have a young couple come in, Christopher and Joanna. I said, where are you guys from? They said, we're from the Paris suburbs. Oh, really? Uh, From a certain church there. And I said, do you happen to know Claude and Fabienne? And they said, oh, yeah, we know them. They led us to the Lord. They discipled us. They prepared us for marriage. They counseled us to go into Christian ministry. Holy cow. 20 years later, the fruit from that. And then 10 years after that, I have a new student. His name is Etienne, Stephen. I said, Etienne, where are you from? Oh, I'm from the church over by Basel, Switzerland, and my pastor is a guy named Christopher and his wife, Joanne. And they led me to the Lord and counseled me and encouraged me to go into Christian ministry. I'm going, Lord, I never would have imagined that you were doing all that from that one response back in 1981. All that to say... If you read your Bible, you know that this is often the way that God does things. And you and I, we are terrible judges of what is really useful and really successful or what God might be doing. We don't see it. So don't get discouraged. Be patient. Jesus will build this church, and he'll build it despite or even through our weaknesses and our failings. 
And then our last point here, last application. Jesus will build his church, and he will build it using each one of us, each one of you, his servants, in our own generation. In Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Paul were preaching in a synagogue one day, and the people who heard, most of them rejected the message. So Paul turned to them, and he said in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, he says, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Does that verse sound familiar? That's Isaiah 49, verse 6 again. He's quoting that verse. And Paul is saying that the ministry that he, Paul, had is an extension of the ministry of the servant king. As the servant did that, his servants continued to do that. And just a couple verses earlier in that same text, in verse 36, Paul uses this interesting expression. For David, King David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, dot, dot, dot. Do you know the name? Well, you heard it earlier. Rick mentioned it. The name of Pastor John Mitchell. Most of you here don't know who that was. But Rick mentioned he was the founding father of Bethany Bible Church. He served the purpose of God in his generation, created Bethany, and then from Bethany, John Mitchell encouraged the planting of other churches. Camelback, where I'm a member, Trinity Bible Church, Scottsdale Bible Church, Desert Springs Bible Church. If you were to go to Camelback Bible Church this morning and talk to people, most of them won't remember the name of Grant Howard. He was our first pastor. Or John Booth. A few would still remember the name of Malcolm Crunk. But most of that just passes on how quickly we pass into forgotten history. Rick, uh, I, I do hate to say this uh, to you, but uh, <clears throat> in a few years, in a very few years, uh, no one's going to remember us, you and I here. Uh, I hope that we still have a little bit of tread left in our tires. We can get a few more years before the Lord calls us home. That, that'd be great. But sooner or later, somebody's going to say, Ricky, for a oh, was that the guy who was there before Caleb was there at Desert Spring? And don't laugh, Caleb, because you're up next after that. So it's okay. <laughs> and somebody's going to say, Desert Springs actually had missionaries in France? Nobody will remember. That's okay. That's perfectly fine. Number one, because God doesn't forget, and that's what's important. But also because that's the way it should be. Rick and I cannot serve the generation of 2048. If we're even alive, we'll be like 100 years old. So I mean, we can't do it. But some of you can. And so if in 2048 we want to have solid mature men and women in their 40s and 50s who will be serving God's purpose in their generation here in Phoenix and in missions around the world? Where do you think those people are today? They're right here. You're in your teens. You're in your early 20s. And all of us have a purpose to serve in our generation. But we need to be looking ahead you in your young years, in your teens and 20s, are you ready? Are you getting ready to serve God's purposes in your generation? Jesus will build this church, and he'll build it using each one of us, his servants, in our own generation. The civilization of the West is crumbling. You see it every day on the news. 
but Jesus is still building his church. That pyramid is still expanding out there, that his light might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's his heart for the world. And each one of us has a part to play. What's yours?